why am I still alive? Is you know was kind of the general question. Can't I do any better than that? Uh, force of habit isn't enough. I I need a better reason than that. So then I started thinking about purpose. I'm going to edit this so that I can take out all the stupid things that I say and just leave the, you know, the intelligent pearls of wisdom. Isn't that's right, right. That that you impart. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking we may not have enough time can record it that way, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> that, well, yes. Dick Myers is a buddy of mine. I wrote about Dick in an article for Third Act magazine called The Call to Adventure, Using Myths to Navigate Late-Life Transitions. The idea of the article was to focus on the major transitions we go through as we age. I used the hero's journey as a metaphor for various stages that we have to go through when we face major late-life transitions like retirement or downsizing and relocation or changes in our physical capabilities and changes in our mental capabilities, or even the death of loved ones. Mythologist Joseph Campbell found that all cultures have a common myth, and he called it a monomyth, that takes a hero away from the safety and security of home and propels him or her into an unknown and mysterious land. And eventually the hero goes through a transformation that makes him or her a stronger and better person. Now, Dick is in his 80s and has, to my mind, confronted a lot of major transitions in recent years. But rather than be defeated by these challenges, Dick has reinvented himself, discovering new ways to cultivate meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in his life. And I ended the article by saying that, quite sincerely, Dick is my hero. In this discussion, we explore how Dick has reframed his life as a call to adventure. What I wanted to focus on was the idea of transitions that we've talked about a lot. Okay. Based loosely around the article that I wrote and the idea of Joseph Campbell's okay. hero's journey. Right, right. I think that's a great framework. I think I think there's a lot that can be done with that. It's got a lot of good elements to it. So, which of the elements you know come to mind as, as being helpful? Well, the idea that it's a challenge and an adventure, right, is a, is a complete reframing because, you know, the, the whole thing about aging is that you think of it as deterioration and decay and loss. Right. So that's kind of the way aging is set up. That's the framework. You know, what is aging anyway? It, there's the whole physical aspect to it, but the social aspect really is related to work and retirement. Okay. Because that's when your life changes, when you mm -hmm. lose that, that core uh, aspect of your life, which in this country seems to be people's identity as well. Right. So I, I think in European countries, I've never lived there, but my understanding is that people aren't oriented toward defining who they are by their work in the same way. So it's, uh, I think to some extent, it's an American phenomenon. Did you feel yeah. that way about yourself? Did you define yourself through your work? No. Nope. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so, but I didn't have what I thought, you know, a People have a career where they're devoted to a particular field of work somehow. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have that. I was kind of all over the place, you know, so I went from one thing to another. So I never really thought of myself. 
you know, I'd, people would talk about their career and I'd look around and say, career, what is that? I don't have a career. <laughs> so I never well, really thought of myself that way. I didn't define myself by my work. I was who I was and I was doing this or I was doing that. Did you define yourself as in, in any particular way? Well, I always felt like I was who I was and take it or leave it. Without you know, a need to define it. You were just, you were just there being you. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I never reduced it into a definition. You mm-hmm. know, I just felt like that, well, if I was uh, approaching things as honestly as I could and doing the best I could, that somehow that's who I was. And it's not a very intellectual approach. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's very Zen-like, you know. You're, you're... Yeah, I sort of take it as it is. I forget who said it now, but one of the philosophers said, an unexamined life is not worth living. I've, I've always thought about that, and uh, somehow, I guess, was never focused enough to really... It was always in the back of my mind, but I never sat down and did the examination. So uh, I never took it to that point. And of course, now I think more about it now uh, because, you know, there's more time. Right. And I think at this stage of life, you start looking back and saying, well, what, what's it all worth? What, what happened anyway? Why did I do this or not? <laughs> <laughs> you mean anything in your life? Why did you yes. take this turn and not that? Yes, turn? exactly. Why, what made me do that? And what, what's the thread? What ties it all together? Yep. Does it make any sense, you know? And that's another thing that I've heard is, you know, that uh, fiction makes sense, but life doesn't. Right. So there's a danger in, in looking back on your life that you're going to end up saying, well, what the hell did it all mean after all? Well, I think you can look back at that and I, you see threads and behavior patterns. And, and you know, you if you examine it, I think you can look back and, and find a common thread and say, OK, that says something about who I am and who I was. Mm-hmm. And how I got to be what I am today, but it wasn't a plan, right? You know, it uh, re- reflected who I was. The decisions I made reflected something about who I was and the situation I was in at the moment. We are emergent individuals. It's uh, yeah, self right. self organizing as it goes along. Right. Sort yeah. of a wildflower kind of thing, and it grows <laughs> wherever it wherever it lands and it turns into whatever it is. So have you done that exercise of looking back and trying to find common threads or themes that ran through your life? Um, I muse on that. It's not like a conscious effort because Mm -hmm. as you know, I'm very busy, but you know, I'll sit around in the evening and thoughts pop into my head. And so I'll sit and try to work those out. And I've gotten into the habit more of trying to write those things down. And, you know, if I have a thought and I say, gee, that's interesting, I'll explore it a little Mm. bit and then I'll write it down. And, you know, it might turn out to be a couple of paragraphs. Uh, Occasionally it might get up to a thousand words. It tends to be much shorter than that. But I've been collecting those things and and thinking this might be interesting to go back and look at. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I thought about keeping a diary, but I, Mm -hmm. and I, started that a couple of times but never had the discipline to do it yeah nor i yeah after 82 uh, some odd years of life have you figured out the meaning of life no (laughs) figured out your the meaning of dick myers yeah i i think it all comes down to you know, I have a bubble theory. <laughs> oh, 
That sounds good. What's the bubble? Yeah, theory? the bubble theory is I know you've I know you've seen these these seen these little paperweight globes where you have wa- water and and snowflakes and oh a yeah yeah globe, snow globe can, right yeah so I've started visualizing everything as being within one or more of these bubbles. Okay, so All you right. can, you can take everything that I know, everything that I've ever heard of or thought about or experienced or imagined. And all of that fits inside a little bubble when you put it in the context of four and a half billion years of Earth and billions of miles of of space and billions of objects in Mm -hmm. space that are stars and planets and asteroids. And you put all all of everything that there is, everything that I'm aware of, and put it into one of those little bubbles in the context of all of this vastness of, of everything else. And that's kind of a stunning thought to think about how little, you know, when I think about space and time, I think about all these distant things, but even my thinking about that is all inside this little glass jar. And the implication is that everybody has their own snow globe, their own bubble. Well, different aspects of your life. I mean, if you think about your everyday life, that's a bubble within this other bubble. Okay. So you reduce that down and you say, well, what is important anyway? What's important comes from inside. Because, you know, I, I think I told you about this. Is I was listening to a radio and an astrophysicist was talking about the universe and, you know, and said in four and a half billion years, you know, it's going to be the end of the universe. Huh. And I found that I, I reflected on that and I was profoundly depressed by that. It's like, oh, my God, you mean all this is going to come to nothing? And as I began thinking about that further and further, it's like everything that I see, hear, touch, feel, imagine it's just going to disappear in four and a half billion years. And probably in three billion years, it won't make much difference either. So, you know, I mean, you can bring that back down and say, where's the time horizon of when anything that I'm aware of is even going to matter to anybody or anything. And it's all just this tiny little blip in, in this vastness of space and time. So if you're looking for meaning, you know, is there meaning in all that space and time? No, it all comes from inside the brain. So meaning then becomes reduced to something that comes out of your own brain. So then you look around and say, well, what's important to me? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the people I interact with, the things that I can do, the things where I can make a difference. So meaning is somewhere in that much smaller bubble. So it reduces what I have to consider when I'm looking for meaning. And a lot of what you have to consider inside the bubble depends on the choices that you make about exactly. what, what to bring into the bubble. Yes, Part, part of aging is getting stuck in your ways. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we interviewed a guy. We have something called Meet Me at the Village where new prospects come in and they visit with right, right. from the village just to get acquainted and see what it's all about. So we interviewed this guy, and he was a very interesting guy. He'd had a very interesting life. He was a pilot. He worked at JPL. So he was a very scientifically oriented guy, very directed he was a ham radio operator. He was an enthusiastic bicyclist. And uh, you know, the list went on and on. I think he'd done some writing and maybe written some poetry or something. Very interesting guy. Well, he's losing all of this. You know, He had his own airplane. He can't keep it up. His ham radio he can't do because of something about the environment in the ham radio environment in California and the mountains. Mm. You know, it, it's a different kind of experience. 
he can't do his bicycling because he, he doesn't have the balance anymore. So all of these things that he spent his life doing and that he put his time into, he's losing those things for a variety of reasons. So you start talking to him and say, well, will you do this instead? Well, I've never liked that. Yeah. He suggests something new and different. He says, no, right. Oh, okay. And his attitude is, no, I've never liked that. I've never done that. Well, okay. You reduce it down and you say, okay, all of the things that you liked and used to do for one reason or another, you can't do anything anymore, but there's still a lot of things you can do. This guy was an intelligent guy, very capable. He could do a lot of things. Right. But if he's going to refuse to do anything new, he's got to do something that's new because if he was really interested in it long term, he would have been doing it already. Okay. But he right. hasn't. Right. Okay. So now there's newness for him, but he rejects it. Do you think but part of he, his. He rejected newness. And the thing yeah. is, when you're younger and you're going through life, newness intrudes on your life because you're going to go get a job. You're going to start a new job. You're going to meet new people. You're going to learn new skills. You know, maybe you go to school, you're looking forward to graduating from school. You move to a new community. You know, you you meet someone, you fall in love. That's part of a newness of life. You have children, you become a parent. These things happen to you in life over when you reach the older age, what happens to you in life on its own? Bad news. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I see. So instead good of the exciting good, good stuff that comes of its exactly. own. Exactly. <laughs> but if you're still capable of doing things, then you can reach out and grab something. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so part of what you're describing in a loss with age is that whole process of newness and Yes. Excitement and exploration and discovery. Yes. And you use the word jaded, which is probably right. So, yeah. So, how do we? I mean, one of the challenges it seems like is as older people who have all this experience, we've been there, we've done that. How can we approach life with some kind of the uh, making things new instead of finding, you know, oh, yeah, I find the old and recognizable in that? How do we? shift our heads and say and find the newness and because there is newness in everything yes well it takes a mental effort is i think is the is the answer to that yeah that that plays into another idea that i've had is that uh, everything is imagination you know because oh. every, everything that you know of and think of as reality is just something that you've imagined and uh this is not denying reality it's saying that everything you know about it is your imagination. It's what you have imagined, okay? Because if you're walking around and a rock falls over somewhere or something hits you on the head, you're, you're aware of reality because, you know, your senses have told you that something just happened. But it's your imagination that tells you that it's a rock or that it's a brick that fell out of a building or somewhere. You have a construct in your head of what that is. And your brain interprets that sensation of being hit in the head and turns it into something, which is your understanding of reality. It could be anything, you know, but you're interpreting your information that you get through your sensory organs that communicate something about reality to you. But then that fits into a worldview that's strictly your imagination of how you've constructed the world. And so in that sense, we all live in imaginary worlds that are our own construction. Everything that you know of, everything in your head is a product of your imagination, your whole understanding of reality. 
is an interpretation of sensory experiences. And like, yours is unique. Yours is not the same as anyone else's. Which is pertinent to the discussion we were having about reframing aging, mm-hmm. uh, because that's what you're that's what you're talking about is yes. is uh, using your imagination to structure your sense of yourself, number one, yes. and then the sense of your the world that you live in, number two. Yes in some way that instead of making it, oh, inevitable, dreadful decline, shifting that around to where it's somehow, all right, I've never experienced this before. Right. This is exactly. interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Which means that you have some control over something very important. Right. And you've had to deal with things. And, you, like- and you're still going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, you haven't sh- changed that. <laughs> shit. Uh, I wish so. you hadn't told me that. <laughs> So there is a reality still. Okay. Yeah. A lot of the the opportunities for adventure when you're young promise joys and, you know, delights. A lot of the adventures that we face when we get older are like, well, shit, how are we going to cope with uh, macular degeneration? And, yes. Which you are confronting and that's one of the reasons that I, I so admire what you've done, because you, you've been confronted with a lot of bad stuff in, the, in recent years as you've gotten into your 80s. Yeah, but, well, compared to other people, I haven't. <laughs> well, you know, I'm in other groups and I listen to what other people are dealing with and say, "Woo, I don't want that problem. I'll take mine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've confronted the death yep. of three really important women, or the most important women in your life. I yeah, think. wiped out all a whole generation, two generations of women in my life. Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with the grief that you felt from the loss of Carol, your wife, and and your mom and your sister? Right. Yeah. Do you still feel like you're grieving? Of course, I don't think you ever stop grieving, but you know, I I've thought of. Thinking about it, grief was one of the subjects of our men's time group. Mm. Okay, so we had everybody talk about, well, what is grief and grieving? And it really comes down to a loss. You lose something and you're grieving, you know. If you have a favorite pen that you like to use and, and now you can't find it, you feel that loss of, of that pen. It's a trivial thing. Okay, maybe it's special because it was given to you by somebody important or something that you particularly liked. It's a trivial thing, you know, it's a material thing, but you feel a sense of loss that you don't have that anymore, but you don't define that as grief because it's not as intense and prolonged. Mm. So grieving is really loss raised to a level of intensity. And is that a factor of how much you care about? Partly that. Yeah. What impact does it have on your life? How significant is it? How intensely do you feel it? And so uh, grief is an emotion on a rheostat. You know, if you turn it down low enough, it's just loss. If you turn up the intensity, it becomes grief. But people react to grief in different ways as well. Some people are overwhelmed by it and and debilitated. And others seem to be able to manage it. Yes. You seem to me to be managing the grief. It's not overwhelming you and preventing you from... Right. I think that's right. I, I, I think that's true. How do you um, do that? Um, to some extent, I think it's a sense of fatalism. You know, like, here I'm on this trail. I'm on this train. It's going down the track. I'm going to ride it until it gets off, until the train stops. And it's, it's going along. It's moving through time, and I'm going with it. You know, I can I can either 
approach it with a positive attitude or a negative attitude. And uh, a positive attitude doesn't solve everything, but it never hurt anything. And a negative attitude never helped anything, but it can hurt things. So you make a decision. Well, okay, I'm going to have a positive attitude. Okay. Whereas if I had a bad pro, if I have a bad attitude, I'm going to pass up opportunities, you know, that could make things better and I'm going to feel worse. And to some extent, I think it's a decision that you make. It's attitude. Life is really attitude. Where I thought you were going with that was the recognition that death is part of life. Yes. And I'm, seemed, I'm headed for that. No matter what, ha- what else I do, I'm <laughs> headed there. You know. As are we all. I mean, as are we <laughs> all. Right. In the beginning of my article for Third Act magazine, um, I used something that you said to me that that one day you were laying in bed and wondering why you were alive. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So tell me what what was going on. Well, you know, I, I was just laying there thinking, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, what what is it all about? Why why get up and do whatever I'm going to do for the day? And this why am, I, why am I still alive is, you know, was kind of the general question. And it, it occurred to me, sort of a flash of insight, I decided it was basically force of habit. I didn't know anything else to do but be alive. I never had any experience with not being alive, <laughs> none that I'm aware of, you know. Yeah. I have no experience of any other condition. So this is what I'm used to doing. So I just keep doing it because I don't know anything else. I said, okay, that's the answer to that. That explains that. And as I lay there and thought about it, I said, wow, that's kind of depressing. (laughs) Can't I do any better than that? So then I started thinking about purpose. Uh, Force of habit isn't enough. I I need a better reason than that. And so that sort of evolved into some of the things that we've been talking about, you know, like, and it's a search for meaning. And, you know, that's an idea that comes up a lot when you're talking about, uh, you know, people in this stage of life and autonomy and meaning or so it's a subject that everybody in some way, shape or form is dealing with is what is the meaning? Because one of the questions that we've talked about casually in some of these groups is what is meaning anyway? Mm -hmm. What is it? Where does it come from? And so I've been musing on that and meaning to me involves some sense of obligation. And when you say obligation, is that like willing obligation? I mean, you're you're obligated to somebody, but uh, that can go two ways. You can be obligated and be resentful, or you can be obligated because you... Oh, yeah. But if you feel a sense of obligation, then that's meaning is somewhere in there. Yeah. And I, ha- I haven't, I don't have the answer yet. <laughs> I'm still working <laughs> on this. <laughs> Well, but it it seems to me that this the is core a theory idea, and process. Yeah. The core idea that it's very hard for us to really feel happy and fulfilled if it feels like the meaning has been sucked out of our life. Yes, I think but, so. where, but what does the meaning come from? It comes from some sense of obligation. And, and you know, we were talking about it, and there was one guy who was talking about projects that he's working on, you know, like building a piece of furniture or something. The meaning in that comes from the completion. It's the obligation of completing something that you're working on. If there's a the process of actually building something which is engaging and takes up your time, but the meaning comes from the completion of it somehow. And if it's completion because you're building that chair for somebody else whose life it's going to improve, then that increases the meaning. It has more meaning then because now it means something to somebody else, not just to you. 
you joined the Pasadena Villages initially because it was a, a way to stay active and to get engaged. Yeah. Now you've taken it to where you're you're organizing groups and you're you're helping the uh, the organization yeah. to prosper. So it's it's like yeah. you've you've taken it and ramped it up a little bit so that the uh, there there's more meaning and purpose to what you're doing. Yes, which is great. How do you feel obligated to the people of Pasadena Villages? Well, uh, you know, I chair a committee. I had a committee meeting for the first this the first organize, organization meeting of the committee yesterday. I have an obligation to those people because I've asked them to do something. I expect something from them. I have an obligation to provide them with some kind of direction and organization and structure so mm-hmm. that, so that they're able to do what we've undertaken as a task. So I have an obligation to every one of those people now because they stepped forward and said, I'll help you with that. And so now I, I have something I have to deliver to them. And does that make it easier for you to get up out of bed and get going in the morning? Yeah, I lay awake at bed at night thinking about it. <laughs> I got up at one o'clock this morning because I was thinking about something. I finally got up and said, I, I, bet I, I might as well just write this down because I'm not sleeping anyway. Oh, you got to protect your sleep. Dude. Don't, don't, don't screw up the sleep. was love that brought us together, Dick. Well, it was. It was. It was David, your, your son, Absolutely. David's love, and Absolutely. Uh, for, for my daughter, Una, that, that brought yep. us together. And, and we're part of a family. Yep, and I am Which very a, grateful. A real bond. Grateful that we met, yeah, in, indeed. And I found out what our relationship is. Yours oh, what do you call it? Consuegros. Ah, con, consuegros. Ah. Yeah, consuegros. Good. So, you know, Carol and, and Judith right. were Makatanishtas. Right. So we're pulling okay. from, from Yiddish to... to that, that was Yiddish, right. <laughs> but I never, I never knew if there was a name for the male relationship, the same male relationship. But in Spanish, there is. So Judith and, and Carol were consuegros, and we're consuegros. Okay. So I was very happy to find out that I actually did have a relationship with you <laughs> that had a name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, all the rest of it was meaningless yeah, until we right. could put a label on it. So when you got a good. label on it, then it's official. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so I was glad to find that out. All right. Well, on that note, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking okay. the time. And we'll yeah, it's see. been fun. I'll be interested to see what you can do with it. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All I'll right. See you. Good luck. Talk to you later. Take bye-bye. care. Okay, bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did and found it provocative, if nothing else. Maybe it got you thinking about your own transitions and how to handle them more effectively. By the way, you can find the link to that Third Act magazine article I was talking about on the resources page of our website at www.mindramp.org. That's it. Take care. Live long and live well.